We have been talking on this program about uh, the shift in seniors' care in this province and an announcement that was made several weeks ago by the health minister that uh, that part of health care would be put into the umbrella, under the umbrella of various health authorities in BC. And as you know, as you've probably heard on this station, there is now a campaign that has been launched by the BC Care Providers Association. Uh, They are upset by the move and uh, would do not want to see this go forward. Uh, in a moment, we're going to bring in the BCGEU and uh, talk to them about what's happening. But first, uh, take a quick listen. This is just part of what Daniel Fontaine had to say on the show yesterday uh, when we talked about this and his concerns. Uh, he's with the BC Care Providers Association and his concerns with what he says will be disruptive changes. We were kept in the dark. Seniors weren't consulted. The care providers weren't consulted. This was negotiated behind closed doors. We don't have a business case. I don't know uh, any of the financial details around this. They're not putting that out in the public. They're just hoping they can bring this in very quickly and hope the public doesn't notice and, and we move on. But we know this is going to disrupt services. And, and the, I think the minister and, and, and the government have to come clean, put forward a business case, let the public, let the media look at this. That's why we've written to the Auditor General and said to the Auditor General, look, This will be the largest ever single expansion of the public service in the history of British Columbia. We know it's going to cost additional funds and, more importantly, it's going to impact home care services for seniors. Somebody please look at this and alert the public as to what's going to happen before it's too late. All right, let's bring in Paul Finch, Treasurer with the BCGEU. Paul, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Hi, thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, how do you respond to uh, some of the concerns that you just heard from uh, Daniel Fontaine with the care providers? Well, it's it's really interesting uh, that the BC Care Providers Association, which is really a group of people that have benefited off the privatization of the industry, uh, are claiming to speak for frontline workers, for care providers and seniors. And it's also funny that uh, Fontaine doesn't seem to be aware of the Seniors Advocate of BC report, uh, that clearly showed what the case for this move is. And I'll, I want to state this really clearly for everyone. Um, this is a move to improve the quality of care for seniors. We know that uh, over the last 20 years, about or last 16 years, about uh, two-thirds of these contracts have been moved into the private sector, and that's seen a massive downgrading of care. Uh, we know that residents of these private, these contracted care facilities are 32% more likely to be sent to emergency departments. We know they're 34% more likely to be hospitalized. And we know that they're 54% more likely to die in the hospital. Uh, so the Seniors Advocate of BC has very clearly outlined why this is critical for care. But we have some ideas as well in, in terms of our direct uh, advocacy for the frontline workers who we do, we actually speak for. And I want to stress this, the BC Care Providers Association, Fontaine, do not speak for seniors and they do not speak for frontline workers. So in our experience, they've treated their workforce like chattel. They've uh, created precarious working conditions that have eroded care and have also seen safety standards have been uh, flagrantly violated on a number of occasions. And we've seen frontline workers kept in these very precarious positions where seniors do not get the continuity of care they need, that friendly, familiar face every day. So uh, we think this is an excellent move. We think the BC Care Providers Association, the senior leadership or BC Liberal Party insiders, they're trying to launch a partisan AstroTurf campaign. 
uh, and their comments on this have no merit. Uh, when when you talk about the the care facilities though uh, and and certainly issues in care facilities are important but but what we're talking about here are home care workers at this point aren't we not not the actual facilities yes we're talking about home care workers and this is the the, the fundamental problem that we're having here um so i'm i'm talking about the uh the difference between licensed care facilities and off, the, the services offered by contracted providers rather than the health authorities to to clear, clarify that but what we've seen here is these home support providers that are, that are privatized, they have a single motive, and that's a profit motive. And so what they've done is they've uh, degraded the entire scheduling in this industry to the point where they're trying to latch on to a very precarious workforce. Um, and the end result is that seniors do not get the care they deserve. So, so what would change them? Because when we're talking about the workers themselves, though, these we're talking about about four thousand workers who are these frontline workers. What we're being told is that it should be seamless that they can now uh, go and apply, and bec- they will essentially become government workers. I mean, we're talking about the same people, and and presumably, if you are in that line of work, you're in that line of work because you care about seniors and because you want to be a healthcare worker. Uh, so, how would the level of care change? then if we're talking about the same employees? So I'll give you some direct examples. Uh, And I've I've spoken directly with many of our members who work in this field, and they do uh, care deeply about uh, the work they do. And many of them are involved because they do believe in in caring for seniors. It's something that's very close to them, very important to them. One of the fundamental problems is that basic standards are not maintained. And so the the way the scheduling regimes, and, and I need to stress this, there was a large precarious workforce and the workforce is precarious because the BC care providers can pay them slightly less uh, and they can also try and squeeze their time more. And what that means is there's less quality care for seniors. It means that key safety standards aren't upheld. It means that in situations where a senior needs to have a a familiar face, uh, they'll simply get a random face uh, based on what their scheduling algorithm kicks out. Uh, and moving these people into a more integrated, uh, holistic system under the health authorities, we think is going to improve the care. There's a, there's a number of advantages. First and foremost, you don't have this completely unnecessary managerial bureaucracy from, from privatized care providers. So removing that bureaucracy uh, is incredibly important, and it actually streamlines and delivers a better standard of care. But on top of that, it, once you bring these people into the health authorities, you can orient the care plans to a team-based, a multi, multidisciplinary approach. Right now, what, the care, what some of these privatized care providers are doing is the minimum possible to collect fees on a contract. And if you bring people back in the health authority, you can start to integrate their work with a more holistic approach to health care. I want to play for you uh, just one more comment from Daniel Fontaine from yesterday. And this is uh, Daniel Fontaine talking about how he thinks that this will actually lead to higher costs. Yeah, so it's a little complex. But what's happening right now is that with the community agencies, they're only um, funded by the health authority for the actual services that they provide. That makes sense. That's what you would expect. So typically seniors require services mainly in the morning and then again in the evening. That typically is when they have a higher um, requirement for services. So we know that with this new model, with the employees being merged into the health authorities, they're going to be moving more towards what's called a just a straight eight-hour shift. So there'll be periods throughout the day where it's non-productive time, where there simply isn't enough work there. And that's why 
our members and the community agencies that do it now are not paid by the health authority because there wasn't the requirement for the work. The new model that they're being implement, implementing will result in about 25% additional cost, and it'll mean we need more carries to actually uh, to do the, essentially the same work that we were doing before. Uh, so what do you say to his claim that it's going to cost more and there's going to be uh, somebody, say, working an eight-hour shift when, when that's not necessary? Well, I think his claims are completely and totally unfounded. Um, and I'd like to address them a bit separately here because there's one thing he said that I think is true, and that is is that we might require more care aids. And that's because they've been underfunding this system for so long, and they've been depriving seniors of the necessary care hours and time we need for so long that we might need uh, more care aids to ensure a higher standard of quality care for seniors. And I think that your viewer, your listeners, uh, and the general public uh, would support that very strongly. When it comes to a higher cost, I actually think that uh, not paying this additional layer of bureaucracy in these privatized care facilities, um, I think that's actually going to, and we're talking up to 500 positions here, I think that's actually going to have be a massive cost savings uh, because we don't need that level of bureaucracy. And in fact, that level of bureaucracy really started to see itself as more important than the care that was being provided by our members on the front line, um, much to the frustration of our members. So I, I don't think his comments have any merit. Um, and I don't think that, uh, you know, the, the, the care that's required and the shifts in the standards of care that's required and the hours of work, these things, these shifts are still going to be filled. Uh, and to, so to imply that we're going to have a bunch of, um, I think what he's implying is that we're going to have a bunch of, you know, care providers basically sitting around doing nothing in the middle of the shift. I just think it's completely untrue, and I, I don't think it has any merit or basis, in fact. But, and, and that is one of the issues he's saying. And I think people who are, who are familiar with the system would agree that morning and evening is probably the busiest time. And the, the idea is, what are they going to be doing during the day? So there's, there's, a, there's different scheduling and shift patterns, and you have shifts that start early, you have shifts that end late. Um, and so in, in an aggregate, in, in a large system like this, you can schedule across that spectrum of need to make sure that you focus on that. And sometimes that requires hiring more care providers. I, Carries, I highly, highly doubt that that is going to come near uh, to the number of, to the savings that we're going to realize from basically these, um, uh, these, this bureaucracy who do no frontline work, who simply replicate the existing bureaucracy that already is in the health authority. I don't think that, that that's going to overpower it. So, I actually think this is a really good move, both from a financial perspective and from a care perspective. And I think the the primary thing we need to keep our eyes on is that this is inherently a better move for seniors. It's one we've been advocating for for 20 years. And if you if people read the seniors advocate report, even from last year, uh, this is just like the way it needs to go. Uh, and just one other question. There are also concerns that some of the workers, uh, and it's unclear what number, uh, might not want to become government workers in this shift. Yeah, I mean, that, that seems really bizarre. I, You know, if you went to a worker and you said, first of all, we're not seeing that. Uh, obviously, we're the uh, largest union in this sector that represent workers. And I haven't heard a single worker that doesn't want to move over. So I just think that's not true. Um, you know, there, there may be the outlying person somewhere that they can find that, that simply doesn't understand the issue. But if you tell somebody, we're going to give you less precarious hours and uh, better resources to basically deliver a higher standard of care in a safer environment, um, I think it'd be hard to find workers that wouldn't line up behind that. And that's what we found with our membership. They overwhelmingly uh, and 
to my to the ones I've spoken to unanimously support this. And so I really don't think, again, there's any merit to this. I, I want to remind people that the senior leadership of the BC Care Providers Association or BC Liberal Party Insiders, and I don't think that uh, this campaign has any merit. Uh, Paul, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we all love or we tend to love the warmer weather and the sunshine. But as we head closer into the summer season, is it going to be a destructive wildfire season? The U.S.-based National Interagency Fire Center released its weather outlook into August. And there are some worrying signs in that forecast when it comes to wildfires and the upcoming fire season. One being that the Pacific Northwest is already seeing an abnormally dry condition, the the, the abnormally dry conditions, and could be entering into moderate drought in some areas. So what does this mean for the fire season ahead of us? Mike Flanagan is a professor with the Department of Renewable Resources at the University of Alberta, also a wildfire researcher, and joins us on the line. Good morning. Good morning, Jill. Uh, should we be bracing for a, a rather destructive or lengthy wildfire season? There's a potential, and I do underline potential, for another active fire season. Um, I mean, uh, it, this is depending on what the summer's going to be. I mean, the fire season will depend on the day-to-day weather during the fire season. If we have hot, dry, windy weather, we're going to have an active fire season. If we have, like... Oof, you know, the, the forecast for BC for this coming week, if that's what the summer is going to be like, yes, it's going to be a very active season because this week we're going to see temperatures crossing over 30 degrees Celsius in the interior by the end of the week. There's a big dome of warm air moving in, and it's reminiscent of 2017 and 2018. But once again, you know, uh, you know, I, I used to do forecasting and um you know, beyond three or four or five days, their skill goes down. So I can't say for sure what the summer's going to be like. But if it's the pattern and the potential is there for another very active fire season. And we tend to, to kind of lump it all in together because uh, every year there are forest fires that uh, that start by lightning that are that are naturally caused that burn out. It's that's part of the the system, part of the pattern as well. But I, I suppose what we're looking at or what we're fearful of, uh, wary of, is are the interface fires or fires uh, where people's homes and potentially lives are at risk. Absolutely, I mean fire is a bit like real estate, location, location, location. And I'll give you an example from Alberta. Um, the Fort McMurray fire, the costliest natural disaster in Canadian history, started just seven kilometers on the west side of town and spread into the community, unfortunately. If that started 100 kilometers to the east, it would have been the boreal forest of Saskatchewan, and we wouldn't hear anything about it. So, you know, fires that spread into communities are the main threat, and that's what we have to be careful of. Now, normally, you don't get three bad fire seasons in a row. But with climate change, um, you know, we have to throw out the old recipe book and say, yeah, there is a potential. And some people say, well, 4% of the forest burned in the last two years in B.C. So, you know, we can't have another bad fire. But that 4% means 96% of the forest is still there ready to burn. So, you know, you need three things for a fire to happen. You need ignition. And you've mentioned lightning. And lightning does start over 50% of the fires in B.C. I think it's close to 60%. Humans start 40%. But they're all 
preventable, uh, the human caused fires. You also need fuel, and BC has lots of fuel to burn the trees, the needles, the leaves, shrubs, grass, etc. And then hot, dry, windy weather. You get all three, you get a fire. And, uh, you know, what the fire season is going to be, no one knows for sure yet. But, you know, the potential is there for a very active fire season. Uh, so are we doing enough or are we paying enough attention, do you think, to uh, to addressing those other issues, say fuel and fuel close to communities and, and leaving conditions so that if a fire does start close to a community, uh, it's it's got uh, fuel and is destined to reach that community? Well, the first thing is, if you see a fire, report it. In BC, you star, for a mobile phone, you use star 555545s. And there's a 1-800 number for landline 663 and then the four fives. So because if you report fire that's close to a community, that's an unwanted fire. And the sooner they know about it, the sooner they can put people and aircraft on that and put that unwanted fire out. But you're absolutely right. We have to watch the fuels around our house, around our communities. And Alberta and B.C. have programs you know, associated with fuel management and funding available for communities. Uh, there's also something called FireSmart, and they have a website. It has guidelines and disciplines about helping protect your home and your community. We cannot make them fireproof, but we can make them more fire resistant so that, you know, we're better prepared. And every community should have an emergency management plan for flooding as well as for fire and other natural disasters so that they can be better prepared. You know, be like a Boy Scout, be prepared. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, you mentioned the temperature, and I think that's something too, uh, seeing a 30 degrees in some parts of the interior uh, when we're still in early May uh, w- w- would strike a lot of people as a bit alarming. Uh, I mean, we couple that with looking at the wildfires we also, uh, we've also seen recently uh, in California and other parts uh, of the Pacific Northwest. And it, it seems... It, it, it seems frightening for a lot of people. Well, well it is. Uh, I mean, you just look at the video and the stories from California. Many people died and lost their homes. And, uh, you know, it's catastrophic fires. And, you know, Canada, we haven't had the same level of loss of life anywhere close to that. How, are we good? Are we fortunate? Probably a combination of both. You mentioned temperature. Temperature is really important to fire over the course of the fire season over a larger area like British Columbia. And, you know, B.C., the main fire season is the end of July and August. And that's the only jurisdiction in Canada that has that, the fire season so late. Um, so we're just at the very, very, very beginning of your fire season in British Columbia. But temperature is important for three reasons. Longer fire seasons, so we're getting fires earlier in the season, later in the season because it's warmer. Second, more lightning, and this is a real concern to BC. The warmer it gets, the more lightning we see, and the more lightning we see, the more fires we see. And the last reason is the warmer it gets, the drier the fuels get, unless we see increases in precipitation, and we haven't been seeing those. So drier fuels means it's easier for fires to start, to spread, and to burn more intensely. And the more intense the fire is, the more challenging to impossible that fire is to put out for fire management agencies. So, you know, it is scary that, uh, and even if you live in downtown Vancouver, you know, the, the chances of your home burning down from a wildland fire is close to zero, okay? It's, it's very unlikely. However, the smoke from the fires in BC can drift down and compromise your air quality for weeks, if not months. And the more we find out about smoke, the more we find out how bad it is for our health.
Well, and that's something, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that's happened the last couple of years. And you're right. I mean, it's not uh, nearly as uh, as in your face as if you're looking at a fire and not knowing if your house is going to make it or not. But uh, people questioning now when we have that smoke in the air in Metro Vancouver saying, is this the new normal? Is this what we have to anticipate every season now? It's a new reality because things are keep keep on changing. Now, not every year is going to be a bad fire year, but we're going to see more bad fire years. Some years will be cooler and wetter and there won't be a fire problem, but we overall, we're going to see a lot more smoke. Now there's some recent research suggesting that upper ridges and fire research have known for 50 years that these upper ridges are responsible for a lot of fire. This is just a dome of warm air, just like 2017, 2018. Those were upper ridges in the fire season. Well, Research suggests that they're being anchored along the West Coast and they're stronger, more persistent, blocking ridges, sometimes they're called. And we expect to see more frequently along the California, Oregon, Washington, B.C. region than we otherwise would. And it's, once again, our jet streams changing, and that's also due to climate change. So uh, B.C. in particular seems to be getting uh, the brunt of climate change in terms of fire. All right. Well, we will leave it there and uh, watch and see what happens next. Mike Flanagan, thank you so much. Uh, My pleasure, Jill. Well, we talked about this on the program yesterday, and there was a protest last Wednesday in front of the Federal Fisheries Minister's office on the North Shore. And this after the federal government laid out new commercial and recreational fishing restrictions that affect Chinook salmon on the Fraser, or in the Fraser River, I should say. And the announcement was made saying it was an effort to restore dwindling stocks and to protect those stocks, saying that... uh, as a result of climate change and habitat destruction, they are particularly vulnerable. So the closure of the commercial fishery until August 20th, uh, that fishery usually starts next month, uh, the overall recreational fishery limited to 10 Chinook per person, and the First Nations Chinook fishery uh, restricted until July 15th. And joining me now to talk a little bit more about the impact of the changes that were announced is Dave Steele. He is the owner of Highwater tackle and he joins me on the line now dave Steele. thanks so much for being with us thank you joe uh thank you for having me this morning uh wonderful to have somebody sort of interested in in what some of the truths are well to this start off if you can how have these uh, this announcement uh, these restrictions that were announced how do they impact you and your business well, I mean, we're a fishing tackle store. We're the only one on the North Shore, and uh, it's just been a, a, a barren desert with respect to uh, saltwater fishing, you know, gear that we usually would be going like crazy right now. Uh, I mean, what happens is you've got prawn traps going out the door and crab traps, but basically the salmon fishing is just put on a hold. You know, the end result being that businesses like mine look at uh, at uh, wholesale distributors and we cancel orders and we hold back and that goes down the line to the manufacturer. So it's been a, it's been quite an impact. I would say right now in the saltwater sector, we're probably, I don't know, 70, 75 percent off the mark of what we would be normally at this time of the year. And we talked about this yesterday. Uh, Jason Tonelli was uh, joined us uh, to talk about uh, the uh, the changes as well. 
What do you say about that? Because his his concern, his argument was that this is all optical, that this is something that the DFO has done to make it look like they are protecting and uh, and uh, helping the Chinook, where it's not Chinook that uh, the sports fishermen are taking. Well, and, I, and absolutely. I mean, that, that's just the way it is. Uh, we, we seem to be up against a, a wall of misinformation, you know, and a large percentage of that is coming from our own federal government, which is, you know, really quite disheartening. You know, you, you have to ask yourself, why, why are we here? How did we get here? Who's the or what institution has sort of led us down this path? And, and I mean, DFO comes up uh, in spades every time you look at that. Um, and there's a lot of aggra- aggravation with the minister. And, and I, I, I think it's, it's to be expected I mean, when Minister Wilkinson, who's been in the in the job for basically ten months, you know, and and he uh, takes over this portfolio, uh, he has virtually zero experience. So he relies on Fisheries and Oceans Canada DFO to uh, you know advise him. Uh, but but when the minister makes statements like uh, he expects the impact to the BC economy to minimal, I mean that's just to me. There's a degree of arrogance associated with that, and and the numbers that are out there uh, don't support the decision being made, and certainly the uh, the effect on our our contribution to the BC economy is anything minimal. Uh, does it seem odd or unfair, I suppose, that while you uh, and, and groups like you, uh, people that rely on this industry, uh, are being severely uh, curtailed with these new rules, uh, there's still, uh, this comes after uh, the requirements by First Nations. And, and I'm seeing on social media, I'm seeing online, a lot of people making the, uh, the argument or the comment saying, if they are in such dire straits, the Chinook, then then why not ban all fishing of them? Why is there any fishing allowed at all? Well, there's, uh, I mean, and that's the unfortunate situations that occur is you have the general public that's really uninformed. Uh, and, and that's to be expected because it's a very complex problem. And uh, as, as Jason said, I mean, we really don't have an issue. And we understand uh, First Nations priority, the resource. But you know, the, the situation is when you have, you know, nets in the Fraser River, you're targeting the fish of concern. Uh, you have to look and say, how far does the string go? I mean, how far up the coast is it, is it suggested that we're intercepting those fish? And, and as Jason said yesterday, the data simply proves scientifically that we intercept less than 1% but we're being taken out of the water because that string of connectivity to, uh, you know, give First Nations priority. Uh, I don't know how far that goes. Does it go to Prince Rupert? Does it go to Alaska? At some point, uh, where do we look at that and say, you know, these guys aren't affecting the fish and, and why isn't Department of Fisheries and Oceans standing up on behalf of all Canadians and saying, guys, We've got data here that suggests that, that the sport fishers in the lower strait are not the issue. And do you think, and I, and I put the, the question to Jason as well, is it because it does look, uh, it's kind of like easy pickings to go after the sports fishermen, and it looks as though uh, measures are being taken to save this Chinook, even if that's not actually what's happening? Well, absolutely, and and I totally agree with that. And and you know, we've always been considered to quote a uh, one of the instrumental partners in, in sort of our fight here. 
is we've always been seen as the dog that doesn't bite. Uh, you know, we, we unfortunately don't have a lobby group. We don't have the donate button at the top of the page. We don't have great coffers. Uh, what we do have is an army of fishermen that are there gathering information and data and, and actually working on behalf of the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. And, and our data is used in modeling to sort of figure some of these things out. Uh, and, and in this case, it seems to have, you know, conveniently gone absent. But we are the guys that are the foot soldiers. Uh, we have the least impact, yet we, we return the most to the environment, the most to the resource via Pacific Salmon Foundation, stream keepers. Uh, you know, we can go on and on and on with the amount of, of, uh, of conservation-minded involvement and volunteerism that we, we uh, undertake. Uh, I, I think in the past you've talked to uh, uh, Phil with regard to the West Vancouver boat ramp. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe on Monday they're they're taking a barge out to uh, Sandy Cove area, the, actually the Marine West Vancouver Marine area, and they've got 120,000 Chinook bolts that they will acclimate to salt water. And the Vancouver Sport Fishing Guides Association has got a feeding schedule, and they will work. Uh, to ensure that those fish, uh, you know, acclimate to the salt water and then they'll be released. I mean, these are the type of things that we do and we're being penalized because of our overall lack of organization, which I might add is about to change. All right. Well, Dave, we're going to have to leave it there. We're out of time, but uh, I appreciate you coming on the show today and we will keep following up on this for sure. But thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for talking with us and, and really dealing with the real issues very much appreciated. Thank you. Well, this is a story that has been making news headlines. It's actually out of Toronto. A Toronto father is asking a court there to green light his appeal of an arbitration ruling. And this was a ruling that upheld the directive from his ex-wife and that directive from the ex-wife that allowed their two sons to not be vaccinated. And it's raised a few questions about what happens when you have two parents, in particular when you have divorced parents, who have very different ideas on vaccination. And often these cases can end up in the courts. So joining us to talk about this is Stuart Zuckerman, who is a family lawyer, as you know, with Zuckerman Law. Thank you so much for being with us again. My pleasure to be here. Thanks. Uh, And you you sent over some background, and I was a bit surprised, I guess I shouldn't have been, about how often this has actually been a subject that's been in the courts. Uh, But is it it something that you've seen in your your practice as well, as far as the the debate or uh, two sides very far apart when it comes to the vaccination of children? I have seen it. Uh, You know, these, these disputes arise between separated or divorced parents, um, uh, uh, very often, not just over vaccination, but over uh, all kinds of issues between uh, how to raise the children in terms of it could be about uh, the religious upbringing of the children. It, it could be about medical issues relating to the children. Um, there's often disputes between where the father wants one uh, thing to happen and the mother wants something else to happen. And, and the Family Law Act has uh, sections in it that di- direct the court to consider the best interests of the particular child that's before the court and to make a determination based on the particular needs and interests of of each child that's before the court. So there's no there's no general presumption or 
rule that applies to all children. The, the direction uh, of our courts is to consider each case individually, looking at the specific needs of the particular child that's before the court at the time of the dispute. Uh, does it make a difference in the argument, though, when we're dealing with, and, and you raised it, so it's it's not as though we're dealing with a religious belief or or, or a, an upbringing in a, in a religious place or something like that. This is We're talking about a medical issue, which could be a life or death situation that people uh, tend to be or can be, in these cases, quite polarized on. Uh, does it make a difference when the courts are looking at something dealing with a serious medical issue? Um, well, of course, the importance of the issue to, to the, the child is, is the main uh, significance for the court. But the, the court is always going to look at the particular medical evidence uh, of any experts. Uh, it won't just be the opinion of the parents that's considered by the court. The, the court's going to look at the particular needs of each child and any, any doctor's evidence uh, on either side um, in terms of making a determination about what's in the child's best interest. Uh, there was one case, uh, a previous case uh, dealing with this, where it looks like to, to me, or it looked like the pediatrician was actually given the decision-making power. Yeah. Uh, how, how odd is that, or is that, is that odd? Very, very odd. Um, it, it, the normal empowerment, the, the, the Family Law Act has a section which empowers the court to, to grant either parent um, the, the right of guardianship decisions um, to have priority over the other parent to make final medical decisions. So that I, I cite you four or five different cases from recent years from the British Columbia Supreme Court. One of them, um, in one of them, the court heard the opinion of the parents, heard the opinion of the doctor, and then ruled that the actual pediatrician would be the one who makes the decisions going forward in the future about whether the child uh, gets vaccinated or not. That's very unusual for the court to empower someone other than the parents to make that decision and normally the court would pick the father or the mother um, and say you know it's it's that parent's decision which may be based on the opinion of uh, the or the recommendations of the of the pediatrician but it's very unusual to actually have the court empower the pediatrician himself or herself to to be the one who makes the decision. Uh, in the case, uh, the most recent one, I, I think it's the most recent one, uh, the one I referenced uh, out of Toronto, this is the, the father that is asking for a green light of the appeal because this was a, an arbitration decision. And and according to the case, uh, it was a family law ar- ar- arbitrator who based the ruling on uh, what he called pseudoscientific evidence and talked about the dangers of vaccines. Uh, how do you then deal with that when it gets to a higher level in court? To, I suppose it's up to, to the judge to, to take all of the information, as you would in any case. But, but does it make it a bit more muddy when we're talking, when people are making rulings and, and throwing out phrases like pseudoscientific evidence? Well, it does. Um, the, the issue here for that particular case uh, is that it's an appeal. So um, w- when parents agree to arbitration, they, they are entering into an agreement to be bound by the decision of the arbitrator. They both give evidence to the arbitrator, both give their uh, their testimony, their, they can put medical evidence for the arbitrator, and then the arbitrator is empowered uh, to make the decision on behalf of the parents. So um, it's a much more difficult case to then take that decision of the arbitrator and go to a judge and ask the judge to overturn that decision because the judge has to treat the decision of the arbitrator very similar uh, to how the judge would treat 
the decision of another judge. So in other words, the 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 appeal judges is hearing the decision of the arbitrator and and the only way that the appeal judge can overturn the decision of the arbitrator is by first finding that the arbitrator either made an error in fact or an error in law. So the the law in in BC for example is that a a, a court judge is not permitted to simply substitute his decision for that of the arbitrator uh, because he disagrees with the arbitrator. He first has to find that the arbitrator has in fact made an error. Either the arbitrator has misunderstood the facts and made an, a factual error in his decision or the arbitrator has misapplied the law. And it's only if one of those two things is first met that the judge is then permitted to substitute his own decision for that of the arbitrator. So it's an extra hurdle and it's, it's quite a difficult hurdle to meet. Uh, we've only got a couple minutes left. It, it seems like such a, a fundamental thing for a couple to disagree on. Uh, as, as a family law lawyer, is this something that you would advise people, uh, maybe have a position on this, have this discussion before you get to the situation where you have children and suddenly you're disagreeing on vaccinations? Uh, well, obviously it's uh, preferable uh, to, to, to cooperate and have uh, some mutual approach to these things rather than uh, having these disputes. It's, of course, it's very costly to have these decisions decided both through the arbitration process and then, you know, an appeal process to the court. You're, you're spending thousands or tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees uh, to get these disputes resolved. Um, so, you know, obviously it's better, you're better off if you can uh, have a, a combined approach from the outset. All right. Or, or, or you have a, you know, when you, when you separate, you can have an agreement that gives a parent, one parent or the other parent certain a final decision-making ability over certain types of decisions respecting the children. So sometimes you can have an agreement that says, you know, um, we're separating and in the future, any decisions regarding education will be made by mom. Any decisions regarding medical matters will be made by dad or vice versa. And you can uh, you can and religious matters. I mean, you know, you can you can set up each category and have a decision-making authority between mother or father over that category. All right. Well, it's uh, very good advice. And uh, Stuart, I thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. Uh, thanks again so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks. As you know, we have been taking this time to uh, highlight some of the authors who have been nominated for BC Book Prizes. And in the past, we have talked to the fiction writers, but this year we decided to do things a little bit differently. And instead, we've been focusing on the nonfiction category. And there have been some great discussions and some extremely interesting books featured in this category. No wonder they were nominated for the top prize. And today we are checking in with Lindsay Wong, who is the author of The Woo Woo. Lindsay, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I love the title. Uh, explain to people where the title comes from. Well, The Woo Woo in my family, it refers to Chinese ghosts. Um, in my family, um, we didn't have a word to talk about mental illness. And so everything is sort of blamed on demonic possession or the supernatural. And Woo Woo came about because I think my dad, he didn't have the name for the sound a ghost makes so you know, a ghost would make the sound woo woo. <laughs> I love how you say that, just so nonchalant. Oh, it's it's the word for Chinese ghosts. As <laughs> everyone knows that, don't they? Oh, for sure. Yeah. 
Um, I just want to read the, the very beginning of, of the description of this. And it says, in this jaw-dropping, darkly comedic memoir, a young woman comes of age in a dysfunctional Asian family who blame their woes on ghosts and demons when they should really be on antipsychotic meds. Does that sum it up well enough? I think so. I think it definitely sums it up in a very humorous way. Um, I mean, in our in our culture, Chinese culture, we don't have a word for mental illness and so I think that's like the only way to say it. So this is a, an extremely uh, important topic. It's a serious topic, but you've managed to find a way to look at your own life, to look at your upbringing and make it funny. How difficult was that? I think when you're writing a memoir, it's always difficult to kind of look at the past and make sense of things that happened to you. But I think humor for me has always been a way for me to kind of make, make it you know, bearable for myself as a writer and bearable for the reader. At what point did you realize that growing up in your family, that things were a little bit different? I would say college, pretty much. Um, When you're in writing class or when you're, you know, you're writing these character sketches, you have people tell you like, oh, that's really, really funny. Like, you know, like you think that, you know, there was like ghosts chasing you and you're kind of like, oh, but I grew up thinking that was normal, but it isn't. And and it talks about uh, so it, and even before that uh, when when you were little when you were about six year olds uh, avoiding uh, the dead people that were haunting your house and hiding out in places like food courts and camping mm-hmm. trips did you realize as a six year old that it was that that was different or did it seem you were a kid and that just seemed uh, fun or that seemed like what people did yeah yeah as a child you sort of you know take what is given to you, you accept your families and you think, oh, this is fun, this is normal. But when you grow up, when you move through the world, you know, you go to like high school, you go to college and you start to realize that, oh, everyone does things differently, right? Especially, I don't know, with Chinese culture, we kind of, you know, we're afraid of outsiders and we're always just sort of doing, you know, trying to make sense of the world in a different way. The subtitle of the book, too, is How I Survived Ice Hockey, Drug Raids, Demons, and My Crazy Chinese Family. Uh, you just mentioned, too, that, that, um, that I, I mean, I think it's a, kind of a question of privacy and such. Did that come into play? Was your family okay with you writing the book? I think for the most part. I mean, my family, to this day, we kind of not, we don't really talk about the book. Um, I mean, there are extended family members who are always like, you know, why did you write that? Why would you do that? But, you know, I think with, you know, memoir, it's sort of like, you know, for me, I've always been like, nothing is sacred. You know, why would, you know, if you don't want me to write about that, then you should behave better. <laughs> and so, and why did you? I mean, it's obviously, it's, a, it's an amazing story and there's so much happening in this, but what, what made you want to put all of this out there for people to read? It seemed like something I had to do. I always tell people that memoir is, it's, kind of a thing that you fall into, right? It's not because you wake up and you're like, oh, today, you know, I'm going to write a memoir. It's, you know, the people that have surrounded you, they've formed your identity, you know, they've been a huge part of you growing up. So why wouldn't you turn this into a book? Did, and, and did it help you at all or while you were writing it and putting it on paper and deciding what to include and what not to include, did, did you start to look at your family differently? I think so. There's um, When you start looking at your family from many, many different generations, you start to realize, you know, your, my grandmother, for instance, had, um, she had paranoid schizophrenia and, you know, we never talked about it. You start to, you know, understand why the people in your family are behaving a certain way 
you start to understand, you know, there's the trauma, the poverty, the immigration, and you kind of start to see them more as people. And I think that's really important as a memoirist. And and is there a sadness at all in that, uh, like you said, it's not something that's talked about. There's not even a word for mental illness. Is there a sadness that that here is a family, here are people who who are dealing with this, and 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 not even, I guess, not that there's not help available, but not even getting to a place to perhaps realize or see that they might need help. For sure, and I think it is it is a serious topic. Um, mental illness is something. You know, it affects a lot of people. There's a lot of stigma about it. And yeah, there, when I was, there was times when I was writing the book, I felt really sad for a lot of the people in the family who were just afraid. And I think that was a reason why I use you know, humor as a coping mechanism a lot. Uh, it definitely. Uh, now, the 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 cover of the book, uh, the woo woo, has a picture of a pig on it and some flames. What's the what's the symbolism or what's the the thought process behind that? Well, a pig is really really important in Chinese culture because it sort of symbolizes, you know, good luck. We always have a pig whenever there's, um, you know, a, a funeral or a wedding or a birth. And so for me, I remember talking to my publisher and I said, you know, the, there's a pig that comes in and during the wedding scene and it's such a huge cultural significance. So could we have a pig on the cover? And they were like, okay. And I like, make it cute and weird like me. <laughs> and so we ended up with this amazing pig and it's also the year of the pig, which is perfect. That worked out very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it does. It, it is deeply personal. Again, writing about your family and about uh, mental illness in your family and and such. Were there things that you absolutely refused to put in the book? For me, I come from a generation. Maybe it's a Facebook generation where oversharing is, you know, it's totally okay. Um, for me, it was the the problem was having too much information. And sort of like going back and being like, okay, this is not working. You know, these are not scenes that are making driving the narrative forward, right? Um, I remember taking out a bunch of um, chapters about my dad's family because it's not about my dad's family in New York. It's about my mom's family in Canada. And so that was sort of what, you know, I was dealing with when I was writing it. And in the subtitle as well, it starts off by saying how I survived ice hockey. How did ice hockey play in it? My dad made all of us play ice hockey. I was not the most athletic child. And so for him, it was sort of a way for us to kind of assimilate into Canada, but also for him to kind of have his hockey fix. Um, I remember going to the rink and not loving it. I would, you know, sort of stand there and be like, I have to play. Um, But it was, you know, in, in many ways, you know, I'm grateful for that experience. But, you know, hockey, it's not really, you know, it's, it's a it's a tough sport. <laughs> it's not for everybody. That's for no, sure. No, it's not. <laughs> no. Um, there there are other stories in here. Is your goal? Are you hopeful that because obviously you're not the only family that uh, that deals with mental illness and and does so quietly, perhaps doesn't share that with others. Is the hope that this will give people a glimpse into to your family and through this window and perhaps see something in themselves as well? Oh, for sure. I think. It's something that we need to talk about as a society, especially Chinese culture. I think um, I don't think there are any books about mental illness from you know an immigrants' perspective. Um, you know, this is something I think we as people need to just be able to be comfortable and to get rid of the stigma. 
And and did you have concerns then once you started realizing what was happening in your family and perhaps uh, your upbringing wasn't exactly what was happening in every family, uh, that there might have been things or there were things that were different? Um, because mental illness is often uh, genetic, did you have concerns then that you too would have, would be going down a, a road similar to that? Oh, for sure. Um, when I moved to New York, I was diagnosed with MAV, which is this migraine disorder, and I remember hallucinating, I would be spinning, and I was like, is this happening to me? Am I having a psychotic breakdown? And I remember reading somewhere that schizophrenia can affect females up to an age 42 or 45. And for me, you know, it's that fear, right? And maybe, you know, when I'm 42 or 45, I'll finally have that birthday party mm-hmm. and be like, you know, it's, you know I'm, I'm past that fear, you know? but it's something, you know, it affects everyone in my family and it could easily happen to me. And it's, it's and again, such a, a deeply personal book. As an author, where do you go from there after you've put the family out there, you've written the memoir? Uh, where do you go from there as far as your writing career? I'm focusing a lot right now on young adult books. They're a lot more fun, they're fiction, they're more fluffy. And I think that's, what I'm going to be focusing on because, you know, I think most people only have one memoir in them. And, you know, once you, you know, put it all out there, it's over and you can sort of move on. And I'm just, I'm happy. (laughs) Well, and and I'm curious when you finished it, was it a feeling of, of sadness that it was done? Was it relief? Did you let out a big sigh or how did you feel when it was done? I was like, I'm going to celebrate. (laughs) Um, But when I finished it, in, um, I finished it. I had sent it out to many, many publishers, um, many agents, and it had been rejected 13 times. And for me, it was such a heartbreaking thing to be like, okay, this book, people didn't like it because it was too dark. It was too niche. And for me, it was just so important for me to get that story out. And when Arsenal Pulp Press, um, they finally decided, you know, this is the book that they wanted to publish. It was just an immense relief, immense joy. Oh, wow. Interesting. 13 times. Good for, good on you for, for continuing. Did you have an agent or were you cold selling it? I had an agent. Right. Well, mm-hmm. very interesting story. And uh, I look forward to, to reading, I, I suppose. Do you think this will be the darkest book you write or do you have other darker books in you? I think I just have a very, very dark soul. I think <laughs> most writers do, right? Especially most um, writers who, who write comedy, right? That's it's something that, you know, goes side by side. All right. Well, congratulations on uh, the nomination for the BC Book Prize. Thank and you. thank you so much for joining us. I so appreciate your time today. Thank you so much.